did look at Acts chapter 1, and our brother looked at the introduction, but as we look into the one of the first interactions of the apostles with the unsaved world, it would be good to get the setting of where we're at. And in Acts chapter 2, there are 47 verses, and what we plan to do is at the nighttime at 6 p.m., we're going to be considering... Um, well, this morning we're going to be con- uh, considering Peter's message or Peter's sermon spoken um, through him uh, by the Holy Spirit to the unsaved world, which is 14 to about 40. And then tonight we're going to be looking at other issues in the chapter, uh, such as the beginning of the church, the birthday of the church, as it's commonly called, um, some some issues in, in verse 38, which we'll briefly touch on, but we'll touch on more tonight in the will of the Lord, and also what the early church did as a practice and what they devoted themselves to after. Uh, keep in mind, this is, this is something brand new. Um, we now are living 2,000 years into the church age, and there are practices been set down from this very book. And so the setting of this is it comes in our Bible after John, but it is after the Lord has been has been resurrected and he has given his disciples instruction on what to do. And in twenty four you don't have to to turn to it, but in Luke, which we believe the writer of Acts is the same writer of Luke, which is um, Luke the physician, but in in twenty four the Lord Jesus gives uh, his disciples, his apostles, instruction. He says this in twenty four forty six, and he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day." And so that just happened. He gives them more that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power upon on high. And so there they are in this upper room. And the Lord has departed ten days ago. And from the time of his resurrection until the day of Pentecost, 50 days and what we find in chapter 2. That's what starts off. The day of Pentecost had come. And the Holy Spirit have, had, had come down and they were clothed with power upon high. And so we'll look a little bit more of that tonight just because it's such a large chapter. And this, is, this book is historical narrative. And so it's telling a story and there's a lot of information here. But we'll try to, in the will of the Lord, look at Peter's first message. And so there, there arises um, some discussion among the unbelievers as they're viewing this event happening, the Holy Spirit coming down, they're talking in tongues that were not the languages that were not their original language. You know, I, I, of course, in America, English is the is the national language. It would be as if I were speaking French or something, something that wouldn't be mine. And they were clothed with this ability, with power upon high, to proclaim, as we look in 24, forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. So there was a message that they were carrying, but they weren't going to be doing it alone. They were just merely vessels through the Holy Spirit, what he was going to be doing through them. And so there was a discussion among the unbelievers and those hearing this, and they were mocking, saying, what's going on? You know, this is kind of odd, this, this behavior. And they said, well, maybe they just came from happy hour and they were drinking lots of wine. 
But Peter says this in 14. We'll begin this. But Peter. And as I was studying through this, I couldn't help to notice as well that there's also another theme through this book, and it starts with Peter. If you look at the way your Bible is structured, one book over is John. And John takes up the theme of proving that Jesus is the Son of God. But another thing John writes is he writes a lot of stories about Peter. And that man, it becomes an example of the high priestly ministry and the shepherd heart of the Lord Jesus. He becomes an object lesson because so many times we find ourselves stumbling along the way. And Peter, as he was told ahead of time, you will deny me three times. Not only did the Lord tell him, Peter didn't recognize that the temptation was upon him, and yet he still fell. But the Lord Jesus said, told him that he was praying for him, that his faith would not fail, and that Peter was restored, praise the Lord. And it's a testimony to the character of his high priest, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his priestly ministry of interceding, and his shepherd heart of shepherding his flock. And if you look probably just two pages over in the last chapter of John, the Lord Jesus then approaches uh, Peter. Uh, the Lord was not done with Peter. And God help us to, to understand that, you know, along the way Christians will stumble. And along the way they will trip up. But God is not done with them. He is a restoring God. And He restores Peter and He says, Peter, you know, He goes through this thing and we're not, this is not the subject, but... He, he brings him to what he wants him to do in his life. The Lord is pointing Peter. He's not done with him. And it, it, to me, it thrills my heart to see that, that God would use such a man as Peter. And he was just merely a vessel and one that would just be following the Lord. What is the, what is the command? Follow me. But yet you see Peter again say something. Well, what about this man? Immediately when he's, when he's told what's going to happen with his life, that he was going to ultimately give his life for the, God, for the Lord's sake. And the cards that he's been dealt, that the Lord gave him, he's looking around, right? And, it, it, you know, I, I can put myself sometimes in that situation. I look at other Christians and, and the cards that the Lord's been dealt to me and, and the hand that I've been given, and the command of the Lord to me is, follow me. Yet I look around and I say, well, what about that Christian? You know, and they have this and they have that. They have a job and... And they have all these other things. If only you would give me those things. Or perhaps if I had that, well then, whatever, wherever else, whatever it is. You know, it's a selfish motive and it's a selfish desire, but yet the Lord says, follow me. And so we, he, we see here, but Peter. And so Peter now, and praise the Lord for this account, that he is now used of the Lord, and the Lord is not done with him, and the Lord has restored him, and now but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared unto him, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, and let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And so, to break down his message, we're going to look at the three, uh, well actually there's four, um, there's four ways of breaking it down. And always, uh, the way I'm breaking it down is through um, when Peter is bringing their attention he uses this phrase, men of Judea, men of Jerusalem, brethren. And so the first point that he wants to bring out to them is God's sentence is foretold. God's judgment is revealed. And verse 15, he, address, he addresses their 
their uh, question about you know what's going on. These men are either drunk or you know why are they speaking like this? For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And he 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 brings to their attention, you know, the hours of the time. You know, what what time is it about to be doing things? It's nine o'clock. You know, this is Roman way of telling time, or perhaps it's the Jewish way. I'm not sure, but we don't speak in these types of ways. But third hour of the day, around in the morning. You know, I find this interesting as a way of application that the world, now that we're living 2,000 years after the Lord Jesus has gone back to heaven, we were hearing this morning that he's coming again. And yet the time is now to respond to the gospel. And yet there are men and women, you know, people today, who think that this is the hour to just, you know, Let's go out and drink. Let's go out and party. Let's forget about what's coming ahead. And yet he says this is not the time for that. He said it's only a third hour day. It's a little, bit, a little early to be doing that. Verse 16, he says, Well, but this is what is spoken through the prophet Joel. And he quotes something from Joel chapter 2. It says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will be in those days. Pour, I will in those days pour out, pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in, sky, in, in the sky above, and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so the first thing that he brings out in the gospel is what? Not that God is love, but that God has wrath, righteous wrath. And there's bad news, right? That's what the gospel is. There's, there's something that needs to proceed. Good news to us is the bad news. And... Just to get us an idea of what this day of the Lord is, this is not a term that we often are familiar with, but to the Jewish mind it was. They understood what that was. They didn't know what hell was, as we, say, we think today. That's something that the Lord Jesus frequently spoke about, and, and that being of the second death. And, but they knew what the day of the Lord was. If we look at the, as far as I know, the first mention of the day of the Lord is in Isaiah but Isaiah 13, if you'd like to, to look at it, but it's in verse 6, I'll read it. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. <clears throat> and they will be terrified. And pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will wither like a, uh, like a woman in labor. And they will look to one another in astonishment, their faces of flame. And so we're given a little description. You know, this is serious stuff. It's describing what's going to happen. What is the response to this great day of the Lord? Men's hands falling limp, losing heart, as if as as in a woman that's in labor, you know, such great anguish. Verse nine, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and fur- cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. Verse 10, And the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light, and the sun will be dark, and it will rise, and the moon will not shed its light. Verse 11, For thus I will punish the world for its evil, 
and the wicked for its iniquity. And I will put to end the arrogance of the proud and the abase and the haughtiness of the ruthless. And so the idea is, is that God is a righteous God. We're given insight to his character from his response to sin. He is holy. He is righteous. And us being now on this side, we praise God that he's a righteous judge. Right? But if we're not under that gospel, well, we're that one that's going to be scoured from the land, that's going to be destroyed. And perhaps you know of some in your own neighborhood. Perhaps there's, there's family members that have not received the gospel. They're going to fall under that judgment day of the Lord. And God has to punish the sinner. And as it seems right now, it seems, well, well it looks like anybody's able to do what they want. Everybody's allowed to get away with things. And it seems like that God doesn't care. Well, he does care, right? We know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So says Romans chapter 1. And so God's wrath is revealed in, in various ways. He, he, he takes a step back. He lets people go and, and, and continue in their sin and, and gives them over to, to depraved minds. And, and we see the results of these things. But there's going to come a day where it's not going to be that. It's going to be utter wrath and utter destruction. No more. The sin will be dealt with once and for all. And ultimately, we know where the sinner will be heading. It's called the second death, right? The lake of fire. Total separation from God. It's a very awful thing. And it should move your heart today, if you are a believer, that those around you, those who are, who, whom you love, and perhaps you haven't uh, spoke to them as it, I think of my own heart, haven't, you know, the urgency to get the gospel out, the urgency, the urgency to speak to them about the gospel. They're under the judgment of God, as we were before Christ. They're under the judgment of God. And one day, the, uh, the day of the Lord will come. Well, back to our story. <clears throat> this is actually in Joel. Um, Joel 2, we won't turn to it, but it's only three chapters. He, uses, he, he talks about the day of the Lord, but there is, um, God in, in Israel's time would do things to them in way to wake them up. He would send famines. He would send pestilence. He would send things to... Uh, to bring them back to his heart, and and in this book there was a, a um, there was a, a, a an army of locusts it would say that would just destroy all their crops and and in this midst this utter uh, destruction he would say tell your sons tell your grandchildren you know you can't follow in this way of sin and then in the midst of this he would talk about the day of the Lord there's going to come a time where God's not going to just destroy or just um, just a little, as it were, pat on the back, uh, pat on the rear end. It's going to be utter destruction, and there's going to be no more chance for repentance. And it's called the day of the Lord. Well, he gives two signs in the book of Joel that you can identify and say, "Well, now the day of the Lord is very near." Number one um, is the pouring out of the Spirit, verse seven, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And so the first, and the first part has been fulfilled. Peter, uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, says this has happened. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. And preceding utter pouring out of God's wrath is the pouring out of His Spirit. And praise God that He... He desires that all men to be saved. And so there's a, a movement, and God is moving today for men to be saved, to come under 
the conviction of the gospel and to receive his son as savior. But there's a second part too, which hasn't been fulfilled. And in verse 19, he says, I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth, blood, fire, and vapor smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. And so this great cosmic collapse, these things that are happening that you cannot say anything else but except that God's hand is moving. And so the first part has been fulfilled. The second part will be fulfilled very soon. When it will, we do not know, but <clears throat> when it comes, um, it'll be utter destruction, the, uh, the great day of the Lord. But in verse 21, praise the Lord, it says, And it shall be that everyone who calls upon the Lamb of the Lord shall be saved. And so until that time is fulfilled, anybody who calls upon the, the, uh, the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, again, in verse 22, continuing our story, um, our next, uh, he, he brings his attention again. He says, men of Israel, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. And so the first, the next point, as I see, is God's salvation is revealed. And it's revealed through the person, the second person of the Trinity, the God of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet it says here, Jesus, the Nazarene, a man. And so often, um, well, not so often, the majority of the world stumbles at this. They can't see how God could come in the flesh. They don't approve of God's plan. If they, if they were God, perhaps they'd think of something better. And, and the way that God won the hearts of those who were rejecting Him, who have gone astray, the way that we, we now, uh, on this side of the gospel, we say, praise the Lord, that this is, this is the best way. But the other way, they said, no, there has to be another way. Just not just Jesus the man. Well, there has to be something else. Or taking away. But the Lord gives us, uh, he gives us proofs. And he says here, a man attested to you by, uh, by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you, as you yourselves know. And I was talking to a brother, and he said this is one of the first, one of the first verses he memorized. And Jesus was not just a man, but he was God in the flesh. And he gave signs, attesting miracles, for men to identify and say, Hey, look, there he is right there. There's God's elect one. There's God's Messiah. And even those who were called to be his forerunners even questioned it, right? Um, looking in, uh, in Luke 7, uh, this story is told in, in many of the, in Matthew 11 too, but John, the Baptist, comes to him and says, Are you the expected one? Are you the man to bring God's salvation? And he says here in John 7, uh, excuse me, Luke 7 and verse 19, and summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one? Are you the Messiah? Or do we look for somewhere else? Well, what would be the response that the Lord would say? Would he slap them around? Would he slap John around and say, Well, look at this? No, he says this. He uses the attesting miracles and the the things that the signs that he was given to do, and um, in verse 21 he says this. And at that very time, he being Jesus cured many people of their diseases and their afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to them who were blind. And he being Jesus answered and said, "Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them." And, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. And so there is a stumbling effect. People can't grasp the fact that God in the flesh, that Jesus is, 
as we were just saying, uh, thinking about today, the name Jehovah saves. That's what Jesus means. That this is God in the flesh. But he was given the uh, signs and wonders to identify, given to us to identify, well, that is him. Raising from the dead, supernatural, right? Supernatural ability. And those were be quotes from Isaiah and other portions of the Old Testament. But those were given as signs and markers for us to identify who is uh, God's son. Where is God's salvation revealed? Well, it's revealed in the person. And 23 says, In this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And then he quotes an Old Testament quote from, uh, um, from Psalms. It says, And David said of him, I was always beholding the Lord at my presence, for he is at my right hand. I cannot be shaken. Therefore my heart, and my, uh, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay, for thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make, known, make me known full of gladness with thy presence. And so, the plan of God. And, 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 this, and this shocked me. I, I, I had to take a step back a little bit when I... Every time we come across this, really, the plan of salvation, how it came about. I mean, even the, delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. And as we would view by, our, uh, by the eye of faith that, that uh, the whole tra- the story that transpiring on the cross, even the way that he was betrayed was, was, was foretold, was predicted in the Bible that this would happen and he would be sent to the cross. You think, you think of all the prophecies. I don't know the exact number, but there, there's an astronomical number of prophecies and, and being fulfilled by one man is just... Somebody did some calculations, and it's pretty, it's pretty far out there. But you think of just one of those prophecies, the fact that he was betrayed and that the party that wanted to take him would pay the man who betrayed him 30 pieces of silver. And not only that, that man would take that silver and he would be disgusted with what he did after. He would throw it back into the house of the Lord and they would use that money to buy a field. What exactly happened was prophesied before, and that's in Zechariah 11. But... The fact that it was delivered, uh, that the Lord Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God also speaks to us that things were not out of control, right? Uh, We think that, well, look at him helpless there. There he is dying on the cross. And the Romans had such power and and all the soldiers that were there and the religious authorities. No, it was the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. It was God's design plan that he would go there. And no man, he says, that can take his life. He has to lay it down of the Lord Jesus, it says. And so he gave up his life for us. And yet he didn't stay dead. Three days later, it says this, verse 24, God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, for it is impossible for him to be held by his power. And this, is, this brings joy to the Christian's heart, right? That death has no power over me, not because of something, some kind of medical treatment, not because of some scientific means that I can think up or, or freezing my body or in one day be reanimated or anything like that. Craziness. Science fiction, right? Because the Lord Jesus has imparted life to me and because he was raised up and given a glorious body, one day I will be raised up and be given a glorious body um, like unto his. 
And this, again, prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled. And David speaks of him, uh, speaks of it, and he would look to, and this is in Psalm 16 for your own reading, but he would say, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And the decay of one you know, person being buried, their body decomposes, that never happened. He was raised up, given a, 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 raised up with a glorious body, and now is in heaven. Well, we come then, and we're moving right along um, to our next point, which is, again, brethren, and, and should single to us as if, you know, think of Alan Shetlick too singling with his hand. Here comes another signaling, another point, and it's God's Son exalted. And brethren, I am confident, I may be confident, I, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so perhaps you would think, well, that's great that David said that. Well, he says, well, are you trying to confuse us with David that he's gone to heaven? No. He says David is dead, but David was given promises, and he's going to expound on this in verse 30. And, also, and so, because he was a prophet, being David, he knew that God had sworn to him to, uh, with an oath to a seat one of his descendants upon the throne. And he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of, of the Christ, that he was neither to abandon his he was neither to abandon to Hades or nor his flesh to suffer decay. And this Jesus God raised up again, and we are all witnesses. And so there was promises given to uh, to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. You know, a title, a place that only somebody who could live forever would fulfill. And that person, well, they would say, well, if Jesus really is the Messiah, he's dead. How can he now sit on that throne? Well, David speaks of it. He says he was going to die, but he's going to he's going to be raised again. You will not suffer his Holy One to undergo decay. And so this again fulfilled in the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus fulfilled. Um, God fulfilled in him. He says he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that being the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And so God raised him up again to which we are all witnesses. And therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33, and having from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured forth this which you both see and hear and so god has been given uh the lord jesus has been given a place and it's the right hand of the father we'll speak a little bit more about this but it's the highest place in all of the universe as we would sometimes think of well what is the highest place in this country well in this city we'll look down the street you know the city hall well what about in this state we point to tallahassee you know the, the laws and the government that would come from there and the hierarchy. Well, even in this country, we go to Washington, D.C. Well, what's above the universe? It's called the right hand of God. And the Lord Jesus occupies that place presently. And verse 34, he says, well, excuse me. He says, well, perhaps you would think, you'd read this and maybe David went there. Well, it was one of David's descendants. Perhaps he was giving this to David. No, he doesn't say it was David. He says, It was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool, a footstool for thy feet. And the more I read this, this, uh, this is a quote from Psalms 110. I, I think, and I, I can't 
validate, but I think this is one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. And it has so much power in it that David would quote this. This is in the Old Testament, of course, but that the Lord would be invited back up, that he vacated a place, and that he would be invited back up to sit at the place that he rightfully deserved, the right hand of God. And as we think of this, how this applies to us, that we have somebody at the right hand of God. And as we said before, well, it looks like the world's out of control. And, and the sinner is oppressing the, the people of God. And, and we read about uh, uh, governments and, and other religious fanatics of other false religions. They're oppressing the people of God. Does God care? His people are suffering. You know, and, and uh, I, I'm out of a job. You know, does God care? Um, why is my needs not being met at this present time? And why is this seemingly out-of-control world system seems to be growing and the center seems to be increasing and the people of God seem to be decreasing? Well, it's short-sightedness when you look at who's on the right hand of God. He says, until, there's a time right now that we live in where this seems evident, that the sinner and the, uh, and the ungodly governments are in, increasing. And it seems good to be on their side, right? We want to get on on their side. It, it seems meant... Uh, uh, when we think of it just naturally, that's what we want to do. Why as well, right? They're the ones increasing. They're the ones that have the land. They're the ones that are having their needs fulfilled by their own means. Well, until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And so the Lord Jesus is going to come back, and this is in connection with the day of the Lord, as we always spoke, where the Lord Jesus will vacate that spot again for a brief time to make his enemies his footstool. And he will come back and deal with the sinner once and for all. And we take hope and we take uh, confidence to say, well, you know what? I can bypass this. I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to be all downtrodden. And as I look at my own scene and my own situation and understand that I have somebody at the right hand of the Father that will come back and right the wrongs. Or wrong. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll make sure I said that right. He will right the wrong things. You know, we... we it's funny, sometimes I think about this, you know, somebody cuts me off, right? I'm like, man, I wish there was a cop up there to give that guy a ticket, right? We want to get justice immediately sometimes, right? But except when it comes to us, you know. Like, if we give, us, give me some grace there, right? But, you know, there is going to be a, a time when God will right the wrongs. Right now, he's been invited back up, and he is sitting at the right hand of God. But he will come off that seat once again to make his enemies in their foot. So it's a very powerful verse. It's quoted in, in Hebrews and on such places, but um, it was not David that went there. That place can only be occupied by the Son of God, only be occupied by a divine one. It was not a place given to a mere man, but it was God himself that occupies that spot. And so he says, it was not David that ascended up to heaven, for he himself, being David, said of the Lord Jesus, the Lord, Son unto my Lord. It's a conversation within God the Father and God the Son. God the Father saying, sit down at my right hand to the Lord Jesus until I make thine enemies thy footstool for thy feet. And so such a powerful verse in Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. And so we take confidence at it that we have one at the right hand of God who is a righteous judge and will come back to make his enemies his footstool one day. And verse 36 and says, and then he concludes his message by this. He says, therefore, as you can imagine the Jewish heart and the Holy Spirit working in their heart. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. Remember, 
starting in Jerusalem. This gospel was going out, starting in Jerusalem and then into the other parts of the world. It says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. And so as they were, you know, when we think of this application-wise, you know, people can think, well, Jesus is this. He's a great teacher. Um, you know, he, got, he has good morals to follow. And men can, can decrease the value of the Lord Jesus, right? They can move him down notches. They can give him, uh, well, they ascribe to him certain things that God didn't ascribe to him. Well, God ascribed to him both Lord and Christ. And so it's more importantly to think about the Lord Jesus, what God thinks of him, right? Lord and Christ. And these people who, by their own hands, right, delivered him up, they said they were in agreement. They said, we don't want him. We don't want this Messiah. We saw the miracles. We don't want him to reign over us. And so you can imagine the conviction that brought upon their heart that here they are. They crucified the Messiah. They crucified this expected one. And God made him both Lord and Christ. Even though you devalued, devalued him and you crucified him, and you said you will not have this man reign over us. You know, Lord Jesus gave many parables. I think of, I'm just thinking of it one uh, now that would describe his coming. And you think of the, the parable of the, of, the, of the vineyard owner. And the vineyard owner, he gives over his vineyard to, to, his, uh, to servants. And these servants are wicked, and, he, and he, now he requires fruit from it. And he sends them servants, and he sends them things to, re, to receive back what is his. And they killed, right? You know the story. They killed the servants, they cast them out. And then finally the, the landowner says, well, surely they'll respect my son. And I'll send my son. He, with all the power and all the, 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 um, the name that was given to him, they'll surely respect him. Well, it, literally what they did is they cast him out, right? And they killed him. But this was, of course, uh, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. But they threw out their Messiah. The house of Israel threw him out. And they were in agreement to crucify him. But this was all part of the plan of God to restore men, to win back their hearts, and to... to uh, to make a bride for him, for his son, the Lord Jesus. And so the last point, as we'll wrap it up with this, is this, is God's specification for forgiveness. Now, this last point, I put God's requirement, but since it was all God's and then an S word, I had to stretch it a little bit. But God's requirement for forgiveness. You know, we, when we were preaching the gospel, we often, we, we like to talk about, you know, our introductory comment is, well, God loves you. God has a plan for you. And that is true. Right? But God's judgment is the first thing that we read here that comes out of Peter's mouth. Not that God loves you and God has a plan for you. That God's judgment is upon you. And w once they get through all this and they realize that they're the sinner, they're the ones that crucified the Lord Jesus, they're the ones that s their sins sent him to the cross. He says this, that they were pierced to the heart. And Peter said in the rest of the apostles, and they said to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what must we do? What do we do to be saved? Well, we heard this morning, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That was a different story, right? Same principle applies here. Verse 36, they already knew this. They both Now they recognize that He is Lord in Christ. So Peter says this, repent. right? And so God's specification for forgiveness, is not, it is He's giving it to everybody, but He won't give it to the unwilling heart. He won't give it to the person that rejects. And so God's requirement, God's, uh, stipulation for receiving his forgiveness is is repentance, right? And so Peter says to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so upon that confession that Jesus is Lord and the repentance and saying, yes, I did wrong. I'm having a change of mind of my sin. Upon that, they would be baptized. And yet they would receive the promise, uh, verse 39, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And there were many other words he was exhorting them and testifying. Uh, he kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so, just to wrap it up with that, is that that's the message that we carry. That's the message that we came unto, to be saved out of this perverse generation. And, and I, I think back to, you know, there's many gospels that people preach. And it's not that they're entirely wrong. You know, I was uh, in my previous job she was um i had this co-worker that she wanted me to fix something on her computer because she wanted to listen to some message and this certain message that this man was bringing was well prosper in the lord god wants you to be prosperous he has a plan for your life and he wants you to do this and he has this for you and he's going to bring you that and some of those things are true he quotes from the scripture right but they're quoted out of context and they're quoted not what the gospel brings first the first thing is the wrath of God. And the sinner must be punished, right? And under that conviction, then the person cries out to the Lord. And oftentimes we think, well, this person made a conviction. They were saved. But yet we look at, sometimes we look at their life and there's no growth. And perhaps they never came under the conviction of their own sin. Perhaps they were never saved, right? And so as we're going out as believers... Um, to bring the gospel, and we need to think about Lord willing next week, is we're bringing it to a perverse generation. Be saved. Come out of that, of that wrath. Come out and be saved from that perverse generation. And perhaps, I don't know everybody's heart today, perhaps you haven't come under the conviction of your own sin. And, and you've heard the gospel many times, and you haven't made it your own. But maybe... Perhaps today the, the Holy Spirit speaking to your own heart to receive that gospel and to repent from your sins and to claim that, uh, to agree with God that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ whom you crucified. And so the message, very simple, is that God's judgment is coming. God's ju sentence is foretold. God's plan of salvation has been revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Son is not dead anymore. He's been exalted. And that is also part of the message of the gospel. And He's at the right hand of the Father. And He's coming again to make His enemies His footstool. And how is it that we receive this forgiveness? Is God willing to give it to everybody? He is. But He's not, get, he's not willing to give it to the unwilling heart. And so there is a response on the, on the person's part that they have to receive it. They have to repent of their sins. And not just to go their own way. That they become the Lord. They become God's people. And they claim him as Lord, and they make him Lord of his life, and they live it out practically day by day. And so just the message of Acts chapter 2, it's the first gospel message that we read of after the Lord has been taken back up into heaven. So we'll look at more from Acts 2 tonight, Lord willing, at 6 p.m. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we just thank you for this time, and we thank you for these, uh, this book of Acts, Lord, and the transition that we see of, of your Holy Spirit taking over the work and the and the uh, moving men and using Christians to bring forth the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now at your right hand, and he is interceding for us, and we thank you for him. And we just pray that as 
we at one point as believers made him Lord of Lord in Christ of our lives. We just pray that we live it out practically at day by day as we're walking this scene of this perverse generation. In the Lord Jesus' name we do pray in. Amen.